So we're going through the series, Kingdom Living in a Hellish World. Uh, and uh, more and more in our society, we keep seeing and hearing, and it is becoming darker and darker. And it can be a time of where we can get overwhelmed with fear. It can be a time that we cower, but it also can be a very exciting time. Uh, but make no mistake about it, it is a war that we find ourselves in. And uh, you're not, but the beauty of it all is knowing that as citizens of the kingdom, that it's kind of a different reality and different set of rules that we play by. That, yes, there are parts that we just have to do because it's part of being in this world, but also recognizing that we aren't bound like others to this is all there is. We are not bound by reality, but our faith. The, the more faith that we have, then the more extravagant we can actually live, and not just in material-type ways, but more just in significance. And we don't have to be cowering in fear, but we can... Or outstep that. And it's this whole idea of the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus came in. This is what he proclaimed. This is the good news is this whole idea that this reality is not all there is. That there is, like I said before, it's kind of like the matrix where you kind of all of a sudden when you, you come to Christ, you start realizing that there's a whole different world and we're not bound by the same type of laws and values of this society and world. But it is dark times. And as it gets dark and as we find ourselves in this war and this whole idea that the, my desires and the Spirit of God is leading me uh, against the culture, then how do we stand? And that's where we need that seasoned warrior, that seasoned person that's been through it. They're ahead of the game. They, they've been through some difficult times before. Uh, in the fire service, we had this thing that that guy's salty. That's a salty fireman right there. And it didn't mean that they were like really like, salty in their language and stuff like that it was more like hey they've been through some stuff and they've seen some stuff and so you should probably listen when they start talking in the military they use this as a sultry veteran is one that has had some experience overseas and tours they haven't been just in their boot camp and it's the whole idea that they've sweated so much that all the uniforms have salt stains all right there would be times that i mean i we'd I'd wash my clothes on a regular basis, but after so much training and everything like that, there are certain shirts that I just have to throw out because of the salt stain. And so we look up to those type of people. We admire those people. Like any time that I was around that person, I would just watch them and observe them. What do they say? What do they do? Like, how do they behave in these kind of circumstances? And the real beauty of having someone that's further down the road, has had some of that experience underneath their belt, and uh, is that you'll notice that they don't panic, all right? They, they usually are kind of like, I've been through this before. I'm, I'm good. Like, and, and then you really don't panic until you see them panicking. And so there would be times that, you know, I'd be on calls with some of these guys, and, and all of a sudden I would notice that there was an uptick in their voice and that they were acting a little, and I was like, oh, things must be bad. So I would start stepping up a little bit more. And then next thing you know, yeah, the person's coding right there in front of us. But they, they had been through that enough that they had seen it. That's what we're going to look at today is this, this Paul, is, he is a salty veteran. He's been through a lot in his time. And, and Titus uh, is coming after his first imprisonment or first uh, missionary journey. He's been through a lot. He's already uh, been like through shipwrecks and all this persecution. And he's that salty veteran. And yet then he's training up Titus is right there in step with him. 
and we're going to look at Titus uh, uh, as an individual as well. But first, let's just read our passage today. Titus 1, 5 through 9. I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife and his children, must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout, disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he has, was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. So, you're going to notice, you're like, wow, that sounds really familiar. First Timothy, right? Well, the, both First Timothy and Titus were kind of written about the same time, but there are differences here that we need to recognize. In First Timothy, the whole purpose there is that the church was already established for a while. And whereas the church in Crete is what we're actually seeing is that it's actually just started. It's very young. It's not in its maturity yet. So the instructions to First Timothy was like, hey, you got already leaders in place and they're not who they should be. And you need to remove these people from office because they're not holding the standard. Whereas he's kind of getting ahead of it with Tim Titus saying, hey, these are the guys that you need to have leading the church. And so these are the characteristics that you need to be looking for so that it's set up. It's setting that firm foundation to build upon. Uh, now, Titus himself, we don't really know a lot about Titus. Uh, we do know that he was probably a Gentile convert from Paul. Uh, but uh, there's not much beyond that that we know. But we do recognize that Paul had a tendency to use Titus for special missions. Uh, the church in Corinth was a complete nightmare, uh, and he sends Titus to deal with that. He, he trusted Titus in such a way that says, hey, you're the man for this job, you go do it, type thing. So, speaking of Crete, uh, it is possible that Titus was based near the capital city, and his task, as we'll see here uh, and we've read, is that Paul's told him to go and establish a body of elders in the churches of every one of the 20 or so cities on the island. And so, uh, the island is not that big. It's actually, uh, if we see on the map, uh, Crete, there it is, uh, and Ephesus, that's where First uh, and Second Timothy were written, so we see kind of the relation there, and then uh, that's, it's not that big of an island. In fact, it's only 3,219 square miles in size. Just to put in comparison to where we're at, Montana is 1,470,000 uh, square miles. So it's a small island, right? But as we'll see, some of these pictures just flip through these, uh, make you jealous, uh, make you maybe want to plan a vacation type thing. But you'll notice that it's while it's an island, it's also very mountainous, all right? And so the travel uh, was not easy. So though, for Titus, you have to realize he's going to have to overcome all these mountains to go around to these different cities and established in these home churches as they go about. And there's little evidence of actually a Roman road system. So Titus 
was faced with a formidable challenge both logistically and theologically in the view of some of the false teachers that were already there. This is a special mission, and it would take someone that's in tip-top shape and someone that knows their stuff, and so the Titus is the one that Paul says, hey, you're the one that's going to continue this on. You're the one that needs to continue and finish the job that started. You are the tip of the spear. You are salty enough for this. And so the whole purpose we see here of Titus, what we're going to see is to uh, clearly establish who's legit and to easily spot the, f the false teachers and people that would lead the church in the wrong direction. And so Titus, here's the thing is, Paul is calling Titus to focus on the solution, not the problem, which is a principle that all of us should develop in our lives. It's not to focus on the problem, but focus on the solution. Anytime you're focusing on the problem, you're going to find yourself keep messing up. But when we focus on the solution, then we see actually improvement. And so he's given Titus this mission of saying, hey, here's the solution to get ahead of the problem. You're being proactive and getting out ahead of it is to lay this solid foundation, not just put anybody just because they're a good business owner or something like that into this office, but you actually look at their character. So verses 6 through 9. We'll look at these. And the code that he gives here serves equally as a yardstick for all of us. This isn't just for leaders. And so don't just think, well, okay, well, I'm, this doesn't count to me because I'm not going to be a leader in the church. You are. <laughs> you are going to be a leader in the church. You don't realize it. But this is also a yardstick of maturity for all of us. This is what all of us should be looking at. So it's showing us how should we all be living as citizens of the kingdom in this hellish world. That's what we're seeing here. That's what we're seeking out. And this is what Paul's laying out. And it really comes down to one word. You see it repeated over and over in this verse, is blamelessness. And this is more of a wholesome and balanced, more than, than perfection. All right? Perfection is not going to happen. It's more about the progress. And we want to be so blameless because we represent the king. We, he, and, and here's the thing. If you look through Scripture... God takes his name, his reputation, very, very seriously. He doesn't put up with a bunch of, hey, that's okay, this is, we'll tolerate this type thing. He's like, no, this is who I am. And it's a lot, oftentimes it's him stepping in, not because of the people, it's because of his name that he steps in and intervenes. So faithfulness, though, is required in every part of our life because of the name that we bear, because we're living to honor the king. But as leaders, as we'll see, our leaders are held to even a higher standard because they set the standard. And so that's why there's even a higher standard. Even though this is something that we all are striving for, leaders are held at that higher standard because they're the ones that set the mark for all of us. And so we're all to strive for Jesus' character, but the leaders and show us Hey, they're further down the road. They're the salted veterans, if you will. Because it's not so much what you preach, it's what you tolerate that becomes the norm. So if you have people in these leadership authority positions and they are tolerating things that they shouldn't, that will become the norm. No matter what they preach, that becomes the norm. So the qualifications of the leader. All right, But also it's a list for all all of us that we should be striving for. As we look through these, seeing where am I at in this? And where am I? Am I 
where I need to be, what uh, changes do I need to make? Because these qualities show us what kingdom living in a hellish world looks like. And I need you to understand, I've already said it before, but you are the leaders of the church, and you need to start now. You need to start now developing these characteristics in our lives. So, you'll notice that he starts off talking about the elders, the person's home life. Because God runs his church, his kingdom, as a household. That's why he refers to himself as father. So, a good look at the man's home life will tell you much about his character and his ability to lead and and to give leadership to the church. And he begins with, he says, fidelity in marriage. So this is faithfulness, not in just sexual matters uh, and, and everything, but it's even more than that. But here's the thing is, if you want to be faithful, if you are going to be faithful in their uh, sexual matters in marriage, it starts right now. It starts today by controlling our thoughts, by controlling our actions, controlling what it is that we're dwelling upon. So it starts now. But it's also this expectation that's given in Ephesians uh, 5 as well. That the marriage of the church leaders should exhibit this mutual love and respect amongst the husband and wife. So I'm going to start, it's the real crux of it is in uh, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, but I'm going to skip up uh, ahead of that because it deals with some of this kingdom living in a hellish world as well. He says in verse 15, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. And he goes on, For husbands, this means you love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. See, marriage represents more than just the the love of two people. Marriage actually is a symbol to uh, all the world looking on what a relationship with Jesus and the church is supposed to look like. And that's why it's such, such uh, under such heavy attack by Satan. He goes on, though. Let's focus back on Titus. Uh, he goes on and says uh, that his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. All right. Are the children themselves believers? And, and he goes on and says, it, it basically saying if they're wild or rebellious, it kind of shows where their heart's at and what kind of is, what's happening behind closed doors. And if the potential elder 
or leader is to lead others to Jesus, then it starts with his own household. This is kind of like, before you get into that leadership of the church, we need to know how you do in your own house, because who is faithful with little is given more. This is kind of like the whole uh, person that says they want to be a missionary. And my always question is like, sweet, how many people have you witnessed to here? Because if you're not going to start telling, talking to your neighbor that's right next to you, then why do you think you're going to go overseas and start sharing Jesus with those people? So, he goes on and gives some negative attributes to actually avoid. And, and it goes into, uh, here it says, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Uh, in the NIV, it might say overbearing behavior, the micromanager type thing. But all the micromanaging, overbearing behavior, it comes from arrogance, comes from narcissism. And then he also says about the quick-tempered. And these are all indications of unfitness for working as a team. So do, we have, do you see that behavior in you that, hey, I'm not reproachable, I'm not going to repent, I'm not going to uh, submit, I have it all figured out, you need to just get on board with what I'm doing type thing. Are you, when you're corrected, are you quick-tempered? All right. This type of person does not listen to views of others but forces their will on them. So we're not to be overbearing. God's household manager must be a servant just like Jesus was. And not stubbornly self-willed. It's not supposed to be arrogant because God opposes the proud. And we're not supposed to have these arguments and quarrels are oftentimes, in fact, uh, quarrels over trivial matters are, in fact, characteristics of false teachers. So the opposite of this is actually to be gentle and to have this friendly disposition about yourself. However, we should not mistake being gentle for being a pushover. Because we see this in a, oftentimes in the prophets, like Elijah and other prophets, that they were very like, I was like, oh, that's a little harsh. Uh, and we see this in Paul himself, and we also see it in Jesus. And so we have to look at this model that Jesus, he shows us this perfect balance of being a lion and a lamb. And we have to be that way with each other, that, hey, I'm going to be a lamb with you, and then I'm going to be a, a lion when somebody is trying to oppose or to cause harm. And so you see this in Jesus where he's actually more of a lamb with the, the sinners and, and, and uh, those that recognize who they were, but then he was a lion with the religious leaders. He also goes on and says that we're supposed to avoid those that are controlled by strong drink or who react with violence to people and situations. Because if they can't control themselves, then how are they going to be, how can we entrust them with overseeing and controlling others? So you want more responsibility. How is it that you react? Not to be allured by dishonest gain, dishonest with money. There is being lawful and then being honest. And so oftentimes, sadly, there are those that will be like, well, it's not against the law. Yeah, but is it honest? To do, be completely honest in your financial matters and an attitude of kind of detachment so that you can be generous. They're supposed to model that. But it's not just about all the things that you shouldn't do. It's also about the things you should do. So there are positive things that are, should, we all should con, uh, have in our lives for kingdom living. He says, enjoy having guests in the, his home. This is talking about hospitality. And this was a virtue back then. It still is today. Hospitality, though... 
is more than just entertainment of friends and church members, often with the expectation of a return invite, or those that we accept or uh, that we get along with. When Scripture promotes this, it's actually the practice of hospitality among Christians was often this urgent, sacrificial, and risky. Biblical hospitality is urgent because Christians might be forced from their homes or jobs with no one to turn to but fellow Christians. It might be sacrificial because material goods were often in short supply, and it was often risky because to associate oneself with those who have been forced out meant to identify with their cause. So hospitality required this sacrificial sharing and stretching, and it was also issued to non-Christians. And you think that, oh, that's, that doesn't pertain to us. It's happening today in China with their social credit rating where based on what you do or don't do, then you get a certain credit rating from the government. Everything is regulated by if you obey the government, you do what they ask, then your credit rating goes up. You don't do what they like by going to church or speaking out about stuff, your credit rating goes down. And then the app that they all have, and that's the way that they are able to buy things, sell things, and travel. And then if you associate with that person, and because they're able to ping it off of each other, then your credit rating will go down as well. And so it's a way to give people into uh, submission to the government authority. And you might be thinking, well, that's just in China. I'm telling you, the technology is here, and it could very easily happen. In fact, I think it will. And so we have to start practicing this attitude of hospitality, of being willing and able to be there for each other. It also goes on and says, love what is good. It's this inclination or devotion to things that are, are or promote good. And in the hellish world, what we see is they love wickedness and perversion and evil, and it's promoted in everything that's out there, in our politics, in our entertainment. It's just they, they, that's what the love is. And what we need to do is to get to a point where we're actually repulsed by it, and instead we actually champion that that is good. He goes on and says that they should be self-controlled. All right, This is a fundamental mark of genuine faith. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You do not have to do what your flesh and desire says you do, like Freud and the society says. We are not animals, but we're made in God's image, and thus we have that power to say no to certain desires. And with God's Spirit to help us, that is where we see it take place. And it's more than just willpower. It's actually this whole implant of a new heart, new desires. And so our behavior flows from that. He closes with saying that you should be upright, holy, and disciplined. And this uprightness, it refers to behavior and relationships to people and things that is holy in the presence of God. It's saying, hey, I'm in the presence of God. I am going to treat this with utmost respect and, and, and use it to God's glory. And being disciplined is that full control of oneself, one's temper, one's moods, behavior, and so on. So there's a quick list, but then he ends with this. He says, You must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he has taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. This is what everything's building upon. Because to have the right doctrine is going to lead to the proper life. And the apostle realizes this. Paul realizes this. And it's important 
as many of people Titus is evangelizing are also being evangelized by a group that held to works for their salvation. As we'll see in verse 10, it was a group that held to circumcision and the Jewish law. So they needed to have to make sure they didn't bring that polluted thinking into the Christian entity that's all about grace and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so he's saying, hey, you need to make sure that they understand true biblical doctrine and they have a strong belief in that and don't waver from it. They shouldn't be ones that are toying around and entertaining ideas and saying, well, it has this good benefit. Maybe we should incorporate with this with it and say, it's Jesus and this. No, it's just Jesus. And so we can't, they, he's supposed to look for those that aren't toying around with new and, and uh, exciting teachings. It's holding on to a proper understanding and application. Gives, as he says, why should we do this? Well, it gives you a weight when you actually have to correct or encourage one another. It's like saying, and when they're like, well, that's, just, that's asking too much. Really? Because I'm actually living it out right now. And it allows them that opportunity to actually stamp up and say, refute the person, because it's like, hey, this isn't the right way to go. And then they're not easily swept away. What Paul's getting at is that theology has consequences. You can't just study this and then go about your merry way. You have to bring your whole life under this because we're living by the kingdom. Proper doctrine and understanding leads to a properly lived life. And I want you to look at this, that notice that God is actually more interested in your character than anything else. He is more interested, interested in changing your character than changing your circumstances. He doesn't say, hey, you all should just uh, pull away and everything like that. He says, no, I'm going to change your character to be that light and that salt in the hellish world. And genuine faith, though, is measured. It's not something that we can muster up. It's something that comes by us submitting to the Spirit in every part of our life. It's looking at, how do I spend my money? How do I spend my time? Is this pleasing to you, God? What should I be doing? How should I be studying now so that I'm ready for what's coming? And the Spirit, as He does that, He's going to make you more salty. What causes us to live this way? What would cause us to hold this line? Why not just go with the flow, not ruffle any feathers, let's just buy our time and, and do our thing? And it all boils down to having this fear of God, recognizing who God is in His holy perfection, and recognizing that He is keen over all, and He holds us to a standard, and He's calling us to obedience, and that we've made that decision to say, I'm going to follow you, I'm going to live for you. And you might be looking at some of this list and being like, hey, I've already messed up with that or I'm off on this. Well, then that's when we come back to Jesus' message in Mark uh, 1, 14, or 15. He said, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. So repent of your sins and believe the good news. The, the key to entering into the kingdom of God is repentance. And make no mistake, this is the path of the kingdom living, and it starts with the cross. It starts with saying, all right, I'm, I, my allegiance has been towards this world, and now I'm turning and I'm swearing my allegiance to the kingdom, to God himself. And so I'm going to go his path. I'm going to follow his, his steps. That is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. A large crowd in Luke 14 
25. We're going to end with this. Luke 14, 25 through 35. A large crowd was following Jesus. And he turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, and I want you to, when you hear disciple, I want you to hear citizen. If you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. You can't be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And if you do not carry your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. If we don't crucify ourselves, if we don't bring ourselves under his rulership, then we cannot be his disciple. We cannot be citizens of the kingdom of God. But don't begin until you've counted the cost. For you would begin... Who would begin a construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started the building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat 20,000 soldiers marching against them? And if he can't, he'll send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So, you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. Listen, this whole idea of salt. Back then, they didn't have the refrigerator, so salt would help slow down the decay of things, but it also adds flavor. And we need to choose our side. Are we going to go with the kingdom of God, or are we going to join the hellish world? And if we try to play both sides, what ends up happening is, is that we lose our saltiness. We lose our seasoning, and thus we're absolutely worthless. And he, as Jesus says, you're not, as, as we lose our saltiness, you're good for nothing. Not even to throw on manure. Your life our lives in the kingdom of God is to slow down decay and to bring flavor to the world. And we risk much to save much. And thus, we need to be salty. 